Your Online Podcast Series, The Perils of Publishing. I'm your host, Paula Proxon. This is the final episode in the series, and we're looking at what happens after a paper is published. We've been following Jamchal Park and Vita McAdam of the University of Pittsburgh throughout the process of their paper, Anxiety Evokes Hyperfrontality and Disrupts Rule Relevant Encoding by Dorsomedial Prefrontal Cortex Neurons, which was published in the Journal of Neuroscience in 2016. Their paper got quite a lot of attention, so I wanted to know about their experience after the paper came out. Well, congratulations on finally making it and publishing a fantastic paper. I think you said that the review process may actually have helped it come into public awareness. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and how you handled that when your paper was picked up by the press. So I, in general, I very much advanced the idea of of making the public aware of your work because this is uh, work that is on the most part supported by National Institute of Health, so it's taxpayers' money, so the taxpayers have the right to know uh, about this work. So whenever my papers, by, by my papers I mean papers from my laboratory, have a topic that I feel like the public would be interested in hearing about it, I make a point of contacting the university's press office and I tell them, like, as soon as the paper is accepted, that we have this interesting findings about such and such topic, would you be interested in doing a press release on it? They're often very interested, so I work with them on the press release, and I've been doing this for years and years. Sometimes things are picked up when they put a release out, sometimes they don't. In this case, it was, because again, there's a huge amount of interest in anxiety and how it impacts decision making. And this was really the first paper that very much studied that at the level of neural activation. So it's something that is actually is, is a tradition in my lab. And I, I always uh, encourage the trainees to be conscious of the fact that they need to <laughs> let the taxpayers know about their work. So who, who writes the press release? And do, do, the, do you get some assistance from the, from the press office, for example? Yeah, so uh, to be honest, press releases are written, depends on who writes them in the press office of the universities. Throughout the years, we've had some really good ones and some that I need to work on. I have gotten training myself in previous years to, in how to talk to the media. It's something that I highly encourage, actually. In this case, I did work a fair amount with our press person because the person we have now is, is quite good, but he's more in tune in writing press releases about chemistry and physics. So I work with him to put out the press release. Um, and after that, once it was picked up, then there were a number of media outlets that pick it up. Some of them wrote me by email, some of them called. And so as much as possible, I try to interact with them to make sure that the paper does get does get the exposure that it deserves. So what does the press release look like? Is it just a paragraph? And how much detail does it go into? The press release that universities put out are pretty standard. They're usually about two or three paragraphs. And they talk about the, I mean, they make it flashy. Then they make it unscientific. And a lot of scientists <laughs> squirm about it. But I think it's the reality of making things simpler to understand for the lay public. In this case, the press release involved emphasizing the fact that anxiety is a major public health issue. It's associated with all psychiatric illnesses. We don't have good treatments for anxiety. And someone who suffers from anxiety 
has to go through day-to-day -day life, make decisions, et cetera. So we really need to understand how anxiety impacts that aspect of decision-making. And to be honest, in this case, it, it helped that it was it's an election season where people are potentially making bad decisions because of a background of anxiety. So I, I guess it varies depending on what outlet picks it up. But, but the university press releases are generally about two or three paragraphs. And did you find that mostly that the outlets who covered your paper contacted you as well? Or did any of them just use the press release without asking you further? We checked the first week, and I would say it was covered in about 60, 70 places without, throughout internationally, just taking excerpts from the press release. The two places that actually, there was an NPR local NPR tech program that they came to the lab and they actually interviewed people. And that was nice because then that they used our additional information. And then there was a couple of other media pieces that they talked to me on the phone and they used co codes that are different than what was in the press release. But mostly they took stuff out of the press release, which is, I think, generally the case and more the reason to make sure that the press releases are, are well done. I asked Katja Bros from the journal Neuron for her advice about articles that hit the press. Neuron is 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 a is a high impact journal, and and I know that sometimes things that are published there actually gain quite a lot of uh, attention in the press. So, do you provide advice and support for authors around how to deal with that? So we, we have um, a, a press department who press releases papers from across Cell Press, and you know I think every month we have a few papers from Neuron that we that we choose to press release. Um, we do also that our press department, I should say, works heavily with authors' own institutional press departments, and so many Neuron papers may actually be press released by their own departments. I think our press department is pretty good at working with authors and their institutions on trying to make sure that what goes out as a release is is accurate, you know, is able to convey the excitement of the work but doesn't overhype it. But you know, what the press does with it after that is frankly harder to control. And I do think, you know, <laughs> as an editor and and I'm sure as authors sometimes I, I mean, you're a little shocked and horrified at the way things are spun in the larger press, and unfortunately, we don't have a huge amount of control over that. We do have various programs and initiatives that are our press department that work with journalists that try to also, I think, I mean, educate would be a strong word, but that try to kind of build um, a, a dialogue between scientists and and the journalists who cover the science to sort of get across some of these points, to get across sort of the dangers of overhype. We certainly think about it also in terms of how the paper is presented in the journal itself, but again, that, that it's sort of hard to control how that's ultimately translated in the press. So we try to be careful about, you know, for instance, overhyping disease relevance. But at the same time, I mean, you want to also be able to convey the excitement and the potential of the work and, and maybe give authors some room to be, to be appropriately speculative when, when that's appropriate. I can remember like, you know, being a, reading like an airline magazine and like reading some little blurb about a paper and, and they'd say, oh, it's a neuron. I'm like, what are they talking about? I don't know what paper that is. <laughs> <laughs> so it's yeah. interesting how it gets translated. I asked Mina Cavallo from Cell about papers that get press attention. Cell is a pretty high impact journal. So I asked her how they communicate interesting papers to the press 
and if they give the authors any guidance. Well, yeah, we have we have a press office, and we issue press releases, wholesale press, and also sell. I think having a paper picked up by main media is really, you know, in a way, a service for the author. I would say it's something that is we find that. And I think authors usually find this a very positive experience, you know, to have the opportunity to to have the paper publicized more broadly and, and really for the scientific aspects of the paper to be properly translated into something that anyone, not people with only scientific expertise can understand and appreciate, you know. I think that's, that's usually a really positive process. We see that our papers get picked up by mainstream media. Uh, newspapers, TV outlets. We also see really, really uh, large role of social media in picking up papers. So I would say especially Twitter. We have a strong Twitter following and Facebook following. In fact, there's really a strong community of scientists who follow social media and who I think get also informed in, you know, to a certain degree about what's going on in a broader scientific field when our papers get picked up, they usually get picked up on both aspects. And we can see, you know, both how, say, the popular press perceives of, uh, a certain study. And we can also often see also the reactions of the community, say, on Twitter, and what are the aspects intrigue most people, and that they are maybe going to try to squeeze into these 140 characters in. Right. I hadn't thought about that before. But I actually use Twitter almost exclusively to find out about new things in my field and what other people, especially scientists, think about them. What could we all learn from the process of publishing a paper? I asked Katja Bros about common mistakes that people make, or, put another way, what makes an author successful? I mean, I have given some thought, because if you've been an editor for long enough, I mean, you start to see that certain authors, I mean, they, they're just more successful at, at publishing, not just publishing work in certain journals, but their papers are themselves just more successful. They're better put together. They do better in review. And I mean, one question that I often get from young people is whether there's sort of a bias, you know, against younger people, for senior people, or why, you know, why when you open up the pages of Neuron, might there be certain authors that you see time and time again? And is that, does that reflect a bias? And I would say that I, I don't think it necessarily reflects a, a bias, but I do think that there's sort of level of experience that builds in really successful authors that then you know naturally starts to make the process easier for them and they and they just continue to build on that and I have given a lot of thought to like well what is it about the way that these individuals and they come from all all walks and experiences and it's not just senior people I think it's some junior people what is it that they do that that's different and you know one thing that I think that they do is that they're really thinking about how to put their paper together kind of long before they're writing it. And mm. that as they're writing it, they're doing a couple things. I mean, one is getting a lot of feedback. Like I often find that the best authors who get, you know, really strong reviews, they're almost their worst critics. They've almost, I mean, I, some of them may just be very good self-critics, but others may be very tapped into networks in their lab or in their in their institute and they get a lot of feedback on the paper before they submit and so by the time they submit i mean they're not they're not surprised by the reviews they're not going into it you know with a blind and you know if there are issues that come up in reviews they're usually able to address them pretty quickly and so i think that there is value to 
as you're kind of putting together the paper, and not just like once you've written the draft and you're ready to submit it to Neuron and send it to a bunch of your friends, is really shaping the drafts with a lot of feedback. And I remember when I was a student, that was like insanely frustrating, the numbers of drafts that I, you know, we sometimes had to go through with our PI on the paper. <laughs> but it really does make a better paper. And you can tell the authors that do that and the authors that don't. I mean, frankly, I mean, the authors that don't, you know, you, they're usually still littered with spelling mistakes. And there's another part of that that I would say I think kind of resonated with me is that sometimes people, especially younger people, will, will be really reluctant to present at meetings or to present a poster. And maybe there's a worry about, you know, putting something out there before it's ready for prime time or, or being scooped or whatever it is. And I think that's, I mean, I understand where that comes from, but I think it's also somewhat unfortunate because I think at meetings especially, chances are one of your reviewers is in the audience. And so I think ha using the opportunity even before you submit to get as much feedback as you can, including make critical feedback because it primes you for then the review process. And so um, it's interesting, like often right before a major meeting, we'll see a lot of an uptick in submissions on whatever the topic of that meeting. And I always think that's a little funny because if I were an author, I'd actually wait, I'd actually bring my paper to the meeting or present it on my poster, put it in my talk, and then and then write the paper because I think you can get so much valuable feedback from probably candidate reviewers at the meeting and get a sense of who might be a good reviewer for your paper so you can suggest them and just have so much more information to craft a better paper from the get-go. So yeah. that's another thing that I think successful authors do. But the, the main thing is I think they're really, they really think about how to craft the paper. And of course, they're using the review process to improve it, but the paper itself is really solid when it first comes in. And not everyone, you'd be surprised, not everyone thinks that way. I think some people think, well, the review process will make it better. I think it's, review process will make your paper better, but you want to start with the best version of the paper that you have to begin with. I asked Jim Kneering, reviewing editor at the Journal of Neuroscience, how junior scientists can get involved with the review process. So I often get emails from junior scientists who basically volunteering their services. And you know, I try to keep that in mind, but to be honest, you know, it's not always easy to remember all these people, but certainly it's something that it can't hurt to, to send an email to the editor of a journal and say, do you ever have a paper that fit my expertise? I'd be happy to, to review. The other thing is most junior scientists, they do some reviewing with papers that their, their, their PIs are reviewing. Many journals, including the Journal of Neuroscience now, just have a, have a box there. We expect if, if reviewers have people in their lab help out with their review, you know, we ask for their name and so forth. And we generally find that we don't want reviewers going outside their lab asking a colleague for advice outside the lab because you don't know if I get a paper to review and I think, oh, you know, my buddy from my old lab would be perfect to give me advice on this. And I, and I, and I talk to that person, well, A, I'm breaking the confidentiality, which is wrong. And B, it could be even worse. That other person might, might have been one of the people that the authors <laughs> purposely asked to exclude because of conflict of interest or competition and so forth. So, so we don't want that. But people in, in the lab, we, we generally re realize that PIs are going to have people in our lab help with reviews and their names will be associated with that. So that's just another way to get your name. So go to your lab head and your mentor and say, hey, if, if you ever get one you don't want to do, can you suggest my name? And it's even better to do that. You know, if you go back to the editor and say, oh, I can't do it, but 
but why don't you ask my senior postdoc so-and-so uh, who would be great for this? Then, then the editor will actually ask that person directly rather than through the, uh, the PI. And that's just another way of getting your name into the, into the system and being, being out there. The best thing is to publish your work. You publish your papers, your name will get out there. And then if I'm reviewing a paper and I just, you know, I just came across a paper that like this a month ago I read and who is that person? And, you know, and I look it up and I, and I is that person. So just be, being visible in publishing papers and at meetings and such is just a way to get your name to kind of bubble up to my consciousness when I'm trying to, uh, you know, think of good people to, to review a paper. I asked Peter McGavin for her advice for trainees. So on the subject of advice for young trainees, would you advise somebody to focus mostly on first author papers? Is there a lot of value for somebody in pursuing papers which give them second or third authorships? Ideally, you want a mix because you definitely need to have first author papers. I mean, that's essentially what is noticed and counted. The one concern I have is the prevalence of multiple first author papers. If your CV shows up with all of your first author papers being in papers that were, had multiple first authors, that's a problem. It's now and then you may have a paper where there's two multiple authors, but there's a trend now to have these massive papers with lots of data and papers are having two or three first authors, co-first authors. The question is who wrote it, whose idea was it? That's always a problem. So you want to you wanna have a few that are your own papers, at least one that's entirely your own, that's coming from your dissertation or postdoc work. Having said that, it's also really critical to have a few second or third authors because it shows that you can collaborate that you can be a good citizen, that you can work with your colleagues, help them out, understand their projects, and contribute to a fellow student or a fellow postdoc, contribute with your expertise. Ideally, I would say you want to have a mix. Peter and Junchal told me about what they learned from the experience and if there was anything that they would change. No. <laughs> this may sound mean, but it was, for, for Junchal, for this to be his first first author paper, it was an unbelievably long, painful process, but I think it was a great learning experience for him. I've had other trainees where the first paper is much easier, and they get this false sense of, oh, it's so easy to publish, and then later on, they're hit by something that's harder to deal with. In this case, at every stage, the paper became stronger. John Cho learned to deal with a large number of different reviewers, styles, responding to editors. And the end result is, I think, a really nice paper. I've heard a lot of really good things about the paper so far. And it's, I think, a paper that will become highly, highly cited because of the approach it took and because it really it really reads well. It's, it's a paper that when I look at it and read it, I'm, I'm happy about it. If I'm happy about it, I'm happy about every sentence. So, so no, no, because if you changed anything, then we wouldn't end up with, with the good product that we ended up with. Right. Junchal, what would you say you learned the most during the process? As Peter said, I uh, learned a lot through the whole process and like how to deal with tough reviews and how to come up with a comprehensive story and how not to uh, deviate from it, describing uh, specific results. So I learned a lot from the process and I'm taking advantage of it. When I'm currently working on my second manuscript, I sort of apply a lot, a lot of things that I learned to this new process that I'm working on right now. So 
it's going much easier right now. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to go smooth this time, but like I learned a lot <laughs> and I, I know what to expect. So, Yeah, could you talk a little bit more about how having published this paper and gotten all mm -hmm. the feedback that you did has affected your work going forward? I learned that I really need to uh, think hard before I start working on the manuscript that even from the initial uh, process of the project, when I'm designing the experiment, that I have to start thinking ahead of what I'm going to write, uh, what's the story that I'm going to convey uh, with all these experiments. And I also learned that I really have to think hard about the limitations about the experiments and what I'm going to do, like alternatives, if this doesn't turn out to be as expected, if the hypothesis hasn't been checked out in the experiments, what I'm going to do and what I'm going to do next. So I really have to think about all this, like different possibilities going through this process. And that's the big thing that I learned. Thanks. That's great advice. So do you think this paper has helped you along the way to making a scientific name for yourself? I don't think so. Well, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know if that really made my name out of it, but I mean, I'm, I'm just satisfied the things that I learned with this process. I think this is really precious experience for my future publications and future uh, work as a scientist. So I'm just so grateful of this whole process. All right, I'll play that back to you when you're a very famous professor. <laughs> That's great. Well, I think we'll leave it there. We've heard about the publishing process from coming up with the study, writing the paper, submitting it, reviewing and being reviewed, and how to deal with the potential fame and fortune that comes your way. We've touched on some of the more contentious issues, such as appealing against a decision, the anonymous peer review process, and rigour and reproducibility. I'm sure we've only just scratched the surface, but hopefully you've learned as much as I have from this podcast series. If you liked what you heard, please share it and let us know. Visit neuronline.sfn.org forward slash podcast or email directly at neuronline at sfn.org. Tell us what you liked and what you want more of. If there's anything you didn't like, well, I've learned that reviews aren't personal, so I can take it. I've been Paula Croxon, and this was the SFN Podcast, The Perils of Publishing. 